Hi there, listeners. I'm Robin Anir, back with Nothing on TV, a podcast that ransacks Trove newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. Our story this time begins with an item from page three of the Geelong Advertiser, dated January 12th, 1885. It's headed Tin Kettling at Germantown, and it starts like this. Eight youths, whose ages would range from 20 to 15 years, appeared in court on Saturday forenoon on a charge of insulting behaviour. Gottlieb Paholke, a blacksmith and wheelwright residing at Germantown, deposed that on the night of the second instance, when a wedding was being celebrated at his house, a mob of young men and boys assembled on the road near his place and created a noise, beating tin kettles and shouting out. They also demanded drink and refreshments. He could not say what effect the noise had upon him, but he did not think it was pleasant. Now a note about Germantown. It was settled by German Lutherans. It was one of those places renamed during World War I. Nowadays it's called Grovedale and it's a suburb of Geelong. But to Tin Kettling. This wasn't the first I'd heard of it. No, I'd heard my partner talk of it as a custom from his boyhood in small town South Australia in the 1950s. But I've got to say, I was pretty surprised to read about this rowdy mob demanding booze. So I set out to investigate. And let me tell you, the 19th century newspapers are full of Tin Kettling. So much so that my research notes for this episode run to about six times the usual length. That was one reason for the delay in getting this episode out. The other was, I'd lost my voice. Trove newspapers, well, you know how much I love it. The ease of accessing all that foregone stuff. But that same ease is a trap for the unwary, of whom I am one. The difference between knowing just enough and knowing too much can be fatal to the telling of a good story. Sure, there are gems in the morass, but it's finding them. Anyway, let's see how we go. The Reverend George Heyer, the Lutheran minister at Germantown, who'd officiated at the wedding that precipitated the tin kettling, spoke in defence of the youths charged with insulting behaviour. According to the Geelong Advertiser, he pointed out that Tin kettling was an old custom, and that although it ought to be allowed to die out, the defendants, doubtless, were not aware that they were doing wrong. Mr Higgins, the magistrate, commended him, You are an excellent advocate, sir, and let the lads off with a caution. So, it was an old custom. Not everyone agreed that was the case. A letter writer in the Kapunda Herald from South Australia in 1874 asked, Are our boys aware that tin kettling is only resorted to in England in very exceptional cases, such as where a man marries immediately after losing a former wife. Here, it seems universally adopted. Now, he's referring to what was indeed an old custom, Sharivari, spelled C-H-A-R-I-V-A-R-I. The word came to English via French and Latin, but it derives from an ancient Greek term meaning heavy head, or I guess headache. 
Rough music is another name for the same thing. In the US and Canada, the word sharivari was sanded down to chivalry, and in different parts of England, they talked instead of stang riding or skimmington or skimmington ride. It's a folk tradition that's been traced back at least 700 years, but I'd bet it existed ever since people first had neighbours. In effect, it was a form of rough justice whereby someone who defended community standards might be dragged from their home and forcibly paraded through the village accompanied by a mob rattling pans, ringing bells and blowing cow horns. The parade might end in a crowning humiliation such as tar and feathering or being pelted with rotten fruit or manure or, if you were really unlucky, stones. Often, the victim of the Sharivari was mounted on a wooden horse or stang, really just a long pole, and carried round the village on men's shoulders so that they could be better seen and pelted. It seems that many villagers kept a stang at the ready, just like the bestocks set up in the market square. We're talking, of course, about a time before there were police to enforce order and standards. In fact, Sharivari was a form of lynch law. What kind of wrongdoers were made to ride the stang? Men with unruly wives, would you believe, were for a long time the main class of victims subjected to this public humiliation. The name Skimmington, used for Sharivari in the south of England, came from the word for the wooden ladle, which reputedly was the husband-beater's weapon of choice. By the 19th century, it was wife-beaters who were more likely to be the target of Sharivari. Also, adulterers, unmarried mothers, old men marrying young women, as well as those remarrying too soon after being widowed. In place of a live victim, an effigy was more likely to be paraded by the mob and set alight as the finale. And Sharivari would take place after dark. So while I haven't actually come across any mention of burning brands and folk horror effects, still I can't help picturing a scene out of The Wicker Man. I was shocked to discover through Trove that this tradition out of the Dark Ages was perpetuated in Australian communities, and not just in the back blocks, but in big cities too, right through the 19th century. An Adelaide woman who'd converted to Mormonism was targeted in 1854. In 1862, near Adelaide, the people of Paynham took action against a man who habitually beat his wife. According to the report in the Adelaide Observer, the inhabitants wishing to put a stop to such disgraceful practices and to expose the delinquent, formed a band of about 20 strong, each one of whom carried a musical instrument in the shape of a tin kettle. They then made up an effigy of the wife-beater and, proceeding to his door, burned the image amidst shouts and yells. It is to be hoped that this proceeding will act as a caution to all such evil doers, and that in future not only the village of Paynham, but every town and village in South Australia will be free from wife-beaters. Still in Adelaide that same year, a woman named Anne Thompson, who had displeased her neighbours in some unspecified manner, had a mob assemble outside her house, arrayed in fantastic costume, disguised with black masks and armed with tin whistles, tin kettles and other instruments of concord and discord. Notable among the mob were several women, inciting the motley players to increased exertion and offering them some fine beer to clear the boys' throats. Women were often cited as instigators of such proceedings. We see the same during coal miners' strikes in New South Wales from the 1860s through to the 1900s. 
Women took a leading role in harrying strike breakers and the police sent to protect them. Together with their children, they'd gather in their hundreds, shouting and swearing, banging pots and pans, throwing things and jostling the scabs at the mine gates. Campaigners for the Eight Hours movement at Bendigo in 1865 expressed their feelings about a mine owner who was a vocal opponent by assembling outside his house and burning him in effigy amidst the music of tin kettles. At Williston in South Australia in 1870, a couple whose child had died of neglect were tin-kettled and the woman burnt in effigy. The following year, an item from the Wallaroo Times headed Partial to Wedlock gave an account of the hostile reception given a widower who had remarried just a month after his previous wife had died suddenly of suspected poisoning. An inquest had found no trace. This week, her sorrowing relict has solaced himself by marrying a fourth wife who has, it is stated, a hundred pounds. This circumstance was considered in Moonta to warrant a demonstration. Accordingly, the perhaps blushing bridegroom was heralded with tin kettles and saluted with a shower of rotten eggs. The henroost proprietors of Moonta complained that their roosts were robbed wholesale of eggs in all stages of incubation. And we regret to hear of stones also. Likewise, in Kilmore, Victoria, in 1874, about 400 persons assembled for the purpose of giving an ovation to a newly married gentleman whose first wife had been placed under the sod but a short month previously. In North Melbourne, in 1882, a tobacconist, said to be near three score and whose wife died about three weeks ago, took a young bride and was subjected to an unseemly disturbance with a large crowd blocking Victoria Street for more than four hours. Boys bombarded the shop and residence with stones and firecrackers, and according to the North Melbourne Advertiser, the old women in the locality appeared most vindictive, not only urging the boys to wire in, but throwing buckets of water over the target of their opprobrium. Traditionally, the target of Sharivari would be subjected to rough music for three nights running, and that tradition seems to have continued here. For instance, when a ridiculous instance of marriage between a 75-year-old woman and a slightly younger man occurred at Walhalla in the Victorian Alps in 1883, the Mafra Spectator not only reported, but editorialised that the happy pair must have spent a lively, if not pleasant, time of it for the first three days of their honeymoon as they were tin-kettled every night, in brackets. Justifiably? Question mark. Mostly, though, the picture of colonial-style tin-kettling that emerges from the newspapers is of a watered-down version of Sharivari, though perhaps watered-down isn't quite the right term for it. Essentially, in most cases, newly married couples, just ordinary newlyweds, were subjected to a single night-long serenade of tin-kettling. The serenaders were almost always young men and boys, and they weren't acting out community disapproval so much as suggesting, or insisting really, that the newlyweds ought to pay for their good fortune. Payment in the form of rum or beer was acceptable, or else a pound note or two to liquidate at the pub. Yes, tin-kettling was mostly a form of mostly good-natured extortion, inflicted as their due by the town youth. Some newspaper commentators asserted that this form of tin-kettling was of purely colonial manufacture even that it perpetuated something of the savage character of the country and its black inhabitants, as the Rockhampton Bulletin put it in 1870. At Charters Towers in 1881, 
a writer in the Northern Miner, declared that such ruffian orgies are unknown in any country in Europe. They are not heard of in England, Ireland or Scotland. Others, though, claimed the custom as peculiarly English. The Euroa advertiser even narrowed it down to an old London custom amongst the butchers of that city, whereby they'd annoy newlyweds with tunes played by beating marrow bones with cleavers. A correspondent to the Bendigo Advertiser in 1866 called tin kettling a custom common in Wales, which resulted in howls of protest from Welshmen the goldfields over. Tin kettling has never been practised in Wales, one insisted. I do not like to see my country being spotted as giving rise to a custom in this colony which must be repulsive to every civilised person, declared a second. And still another maintained that I never saw the vulgar practice carried out in either Scotland, Ireland or Wales, but I have in a certain county in England. Now, I have an inkling as to which county they were talking about. Have you noticed that I've quoted several news items from South Australian newspapers? Well, a disproportionate number of the tin kettling reports I came across emanated from the copper mining towns of Moonta, Kadena, Wallaroo and Borough, towns that were settled predominantly by immigrants from Cornwall, such that they were and still are regarded as colonial outposts of Cornish culture. As early as 1861, we learn that it has been customary amongst the fast Boroughites, that is the most debauched inhabitants of Borough, to serenade with rough music in a most outrageous and disgraceful manner any persons who have entered the bonds of wedlock. I've not come across any direct link between Cornwall and Tin Kettling, but an Adelaide paper carried a story in 1886 of an old Cornishman in a well-known mining town who was ringleader in the Tin Kettling of his own daughter. When her new husband took offence, the old Cornishman seemed quite astonished that Tin Kettling was not taken as a compliment, as he considered that the marriage festivities would be incomplete without it. The other hotbed of colonial Tin Kettling was the goldfields, or were the goldfields, of Victoria, New South Wales, North Queensland and eventually Western Australia. In 1862, a Castlemaine boy who with his mates had treated newlyweds to an extempore concert by banging on biscuit tins contended that it was always customary to play rub-a-dub-dub on the occasion of a wedding to annoy the newly linked pair. He was in court not as defendant but as plaintiff having been struck on the head by one of the rocks thrown by the bridegroom whom the revellers had succeeded in annoying. The boy was awarded a token one shilling in damages. It's hard to say now how prevalent tin kettling really was. The impression from the papers is that it was a custom mainly in country districts. And it's true that tin kettling reports from the city are thin on the ground. But should we read that as a sign that tin kettling was a rarity in the big smoke? or that it was so commonplace as to go unmentioned by the press. What I do know is that increasingly, when an instance of tin kettling made the papers, it was because the perpetrators had upped the ante in some way, or the lark had ended in violence, or both. Let's revisit the news report that began this episode, Tin Kettling at Germantown. It was from 1885, fairly late in the evolution of colonial tin kettling, and it was a pretty tame example of the sport. The mob made an unholy racket and startled a passing horse, but that's about as gamey as things got. The magistrate hearing the case 
let Gottlieb Paholke's tormentors off with a caution, but reminding them that similar conduct to theirs had eventuated disastrously and fatally more than once. The main aim of Tin Kettling, remember, was to annoy the householders to the point where they'd pay you in grog to go away. Just to give you a flavour of it, let me read you an account of this most annoying custom sent into the South Australian Register by a resident of the little village of Walkerville in 1857. It appears, he wrote, that whenever a marriage takes place here, certain persons make it a point to assemble in the evening opposite the house of the happy pair and to salute them with a serenade, the instrumental portion of which is performed upon saucepan lids, tin kettles, boards and other harmonious organs of a like nature. The vocal portion of these concerted pieces consists of every variety of shout and yell of which the human voice is capable. On Wednesday evening, the village was disturbed by this abominable nuisance from dusk till half past ten, and a noise created which not only caused great annoyance to the immediate residents, but was audible to a painful degree at a distance of nearly half a mile. At half past ten, the rioters, finding that their past efforts had produced no fruit, procured a reinforcement of tea trays, dripping pans, etc., and raised such a frightful din that the victims were compelled to send out one pound to buy them off when they desisted, but not until they had covered the entrance gate of the house with mud. You'd read of brazen tin kettlers who would advance their field of operations from the roadway to the yard to the front veranda daubing the windows and door handles with manure or festooning the veranda with offal. At a Lane Cove tin kettling in 1858, the front door was pelted with a quantity of dirt, palings, sticks and buckets, and the noise was kept up till daybreak. Pretty soon the throwing of rocks became a staple feature of the entertainment. They might be hurled on the roof to begin with, but pretty soon, if refreshments weren't forthcoming, the aim would shift to the windows. More than once, you read of people inside the house being struck by stones or flying glass. At Wagga, in 1882, an unwitting wedding guest, the Miss Beeson, was struck with a lump of road metal lacerating the scalp for fully an inch and a half in length. On several occasions, the noise of tin kettling was blamed for the death of invalids living in the vicinity. And at Burra, one of those Cornish mining towns in South Australia, you'll remember, in 1879, an inquest returned a verdict of manslaughter after a newlywed woman died of a brain hemorrhage, said to have been caused by a sudden shock received by her on the night of June the 9th, the night she returned from her honeymoon, a sudden shock produced by fright from stones being thrown on the roof of her house by some person or persons unknown. On the Rocky River goldfield near Armadale in the winter of 1858, well-wishers carried tin kettling to a new height. Literally, one of them scaled the chimney to its very summit, threw a bucket of water into the fire and covered over the chimney pot with a wet blanket, which almost stifled the newly married couple and their guests. And the report goes on. The mob got so furious that the bridegroom called for his revolver and dashed through the mob who assailed him with tin pots and kettles. A word about those tin pots and kettles. From about 1868, they became purely figurative because at that time the tin kettler's instrument of choice switched to the empty kerosene tin, either banged with a stick or shaken with a few rocks inside. Remember that bridegroom calling for his revolver? 
Well, that gives you a clue as to what the magistrate at Germantown had been alluding to when he warned that tin kettling might end disastrously and fatally. From early on, and by early I mean around 1852, when reports of straight-up tin kettling as opposed to Sharivari first appeared in the papers, from the start you read of what might happen when the intended annoyance took effect. Inmates of the besieged house, not just the bride and groom, but sometimes other members of the wedding party, would lash out. And literally, in the case of one Sarah Bailey, whose wedding night was tin-kettled at Maitland in 1852, she went out to reason with the revellers, but words proving ineffectual, grabbed a stock whip and laid into the ringleaders. For her trouble, she was bombarded with knobbly marrow bones. It was usual that those indoors, if they did venture out to take issue with tin kettlers, would come off second best. Near Portland in Victoria, in 1884, a newly married Mr Redfern, when the noises became unbearable, rushed out to put a stop to them. He first fell over a barricade of kerosene tins piled against his door, and then he was met by Sutton, one of the tin kettlers, who struck him on the bare head with a piece of paling studded with nails. That same year in East Adelaide, a baker named Charles Parks was stabbed near the region of the heart when he went out to remonstrate with tin kettlers on his wedding night. He was in a precarious condition for a time, but survived. The thing is, even if he'd given in to the tin kettlers' demands and sent out refreshments or money for grog, the mob would likely have returned even louder once the pubs had shut. Without a doubt and without fail, we can say that tin kettlers succeeded in their aim to annoy. But only in the 1870s did you begin to see that annoyance manifest itself in gunfire. No one, as far as I can tell, was actually killed by an exasperated bridegroom or father of the bride emptying his shotgun into a mob of tin kettlers. Several were winged, and at least one was maimed for life when he was shot in the knee. At Wallerawang, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, might be Wallerawang, at Wallerawang... <laughs> Near Bathurst in 1873, an old soldier named Dennis Murphy, of unimpeachable character and noted for his benevolence and peacefulness of disposition, shot at tin kettlers who were serenading his daughter and her new husband. Three of the tin kettlers were injured by gunshot, though not seriously, and Murphy ended up being sentenced to two years' jail. There was an outcry in the Bathurst district and beyond. Petitions were raised and editorials thundered, like this one from the Sydney Evening News, in defence of the man who resented the tin kettling of his newly married daughter and, after due warning, peppered the parcel of blackguards guilty of that indignity, for which laudable act, oh, we mean atrocious crime, he was sentenced to jail. And the Sydney Mail found it inexcusable that the originators of the mischief get off with a reprimand while the one who suffered the provocation has to stand on his trial. It is fortunate that in this case no life was lost, and it's almost a wonder that retaliation has never yet proceeded to that length when we consider how passionate many men are under unseemly annoyances and how ready to hand loaded firearms are in the country. The writer concludes, It is a barbarous custom, and those who keep it up must not complain of being treated like barbarians. Well, the dudgeon made its mark. Dennis Murphy served just three months in jail before having his sentence commuted by the governor. There seems to have been 
a wide spectrum of toleration for tin kettling. Remember the Reverend Heyer in the Germantown case? He was of the sort who tended to let it pass as a harmless custom, albeit one ought to be allowed to die out. The defence offered by most who found themselves in court over tin kettling was that it was just a lark. Five years before Dennis Murphy's case, a man named Darby had been jailed for six months as ringleader of a boisterous tin kettling near Albury. The crowd brought their horses onto the veranda. They threw showers of stone and smashed in the window so that the bride fainted with fright. His sentence, like Murphy's, was decried as excessive. Tin kettlers were usually fined, at most. In this case, too, the governor was petitioned and the sentence remitted after just a short time. In 1873, when opponents of tin kettling were baying in the press for retaliatory justice, a brave writer in the Australasian had this to say, No doubt tin kettling is not at the present day regarded as a desirable element in the festivities of a marriage, but it's quite possible that the wedding of the inhospitable parent, and here he meant Dennis Murphy, who'd opened fire on tin kettlers, no doubt his wedding was similarly honoured, as may also have been those of his father, and grandfather before him, and in all likelihood the host on the occasion went out to the rough drummers and instead of shooting them, handed around mugs of beer and joined them in a drink. Our grandfathers and great-grandfathers used to give and take a good deal of rude jesting of this kind, which has lost its fun altogether to us, their more staid descendants. The present generation has determined that rough practical joking is rude and uncivil and that it must be abolished. There were even some who advocated the abolition of the practical jokers themselves, like this one. Do you think if a fellow were to shoot one of those confounded nuisances, those small boys who will insist on putting rocks into kerosene tins and shaking them so that they make an infernal racket, do you think any jury in the world would sentence a fellow to be hanged who rid the earth of two or three of these? If I were a juryman, I'd acquit such a man. And If any fair creature ever bestows her affections upon this individual, and on our wedding night, if she says, George, disperse those imps of Satan, I'll shoot them if I die for it. That was a columnist in Wollongong's Illawarra Mercury, writing in 1880, not long after the woman in South Australia was found to have died of fright after a tin kettling. And here, from around the same time, is the Warrigal Guardian and Bull Bull. I can't even say this name and Bulne, Bulne, and Narakan Shire advocates. Lots of men would be mad enough to fire into a mob of tin kettlers, and in some cases could a man be blamed for so doing? With his wife lying senseless on the floor, has he not provocation enough to justify him in firing on them? They are guilty of conduct liable to excite the worst passions of which the human heart is capable. Now, tin kettling tended to flourish in small communities where there was no policeman. But in the early days, at least, even when there were police close at hand, they were often disinclined to break up a tin kettling. Where were the police? was the frequent refrain in the press reports. Magistrates, likewise, seemed reluctant to do more than caution those charged with tin kettling offences. But during the 1870s and 1880s, the authorities were urged to take a tougher line, even to introduce new laws targeting this species of barbarism. In New South Wales, the charge of riot, and that was serious, began to be used against tin kettlers 
and in the Queensland town of Gympie, a municipal bylaw was proposed. When the police did turn out, they must often have wished they hadn't. At Eltham, outside Melbourne in 1879, the constable responding to a racket had a kerosene tin half filled with stones dropped on his gouty foot. Another constable, at Moota in 1871, broke his collarbone when, in hot pursuit of tin kettlers, he ran full tilt into a clothesline in the dark and knocked himself flat. And it could get a lot more willing than that. When they tried to break up a tin kettling at Back Creek near Bendigo in 1880, the police were prevented from approaching the crowd by volleys of stones and other missiles which were thrown at them, with threats that they would be served as the Kellys had served the police at Mansfield. The allusion there, of course, was to Stringy Bark Creek, where three policemen were killed by the Kelly gang. And indeed, tin kettling was regarded by many as an entree to larrikinism, if not actually to bushranging. The mobs would be made up mainly of lads and hobbledehoys. A hobbledehoy was a stripling, neither man nor boy, let's say a youth. As early as 1855, the Bathurst Free Press denounced tin kettlers as blackguards and tin kettling as Australian cabbage treeism at its worst. Cabbage treeism, evidently, was a precursor to the term larrikinism and presumably referred to the cabbage tree hats adopted by gold diggers as part of their colonial outfit. Tin kettling was a big thing in the New South Wales goldfields town of Burrungong. The local Argus deplored this description of blackguardism, pointing out that it's sacrifice enough to get married without being tin-kettled into the bargain. Might the ubiquity of tin-kettling actually have been a disincentive to marriage? When Gympie proposed its bylaw against tin-kettling in 1880, the Brisbane Telegraph predicted that a large increase in the number of marriages within the town boundary will follow as a natural result. A decade or so earlier, after a bridegroom was provoked by tin-kettlers to reach for his gun, the local Kilmore examiner asked, Why is there more security for the peace of common prostitutes and those living in a depraved state of adultery than there is for those who enter the married state? Truly, we may soon expect to see people avoid marriage rather than incur the odium of the populace. Some even seem to have harboured a kind of superstition that to be tin-kettled was a bad portent for a marriage. A Parramatta newlywed calling himself Robin Bridegroom, wrote to the Sydney Morning Herald in 1856 that these warlike sounds seem to insinuate that the joys of this state are short. I fear they have been ominous to many matches and sometimes prove a prelude to a battle in the honeymoon. On the flip side, a satirical piece in the Queenslander, it had actually originated in the Chicago Herald, held that newlyweds ought to be grateful for a tin kettling since it prepared them for the coming jars and discords of matrimony. For me, an unexpected highlight of all these tin kettling reports was the catalogue they presented of journalistic euphemisms for the act of getting married. Couples were said to have made the matrimonial venture, coupled their fortunes for weal or woe, resolved to become one, or even to have gone into double harness. An especially bonkers example from 1872 told of a couple who, having resolved upon casting their lot together, accordingly repaired at the appointed time to the church, there to tie with their tongue a knot, not to be loosened with their teeth. But by far the most frequent formulation had the couple taking the hymenial vow, 
or being made one flesh at Hyman's altar. Now, this struck me as a bit racy. I mean, in my teenage years, I'm talking about the 1970s, the word Hyman was typically found in the sealed section of Dolly. Readers with a history of cycling or horse riding would write in panicking about the likely states of their hymens. There'd even be quizzes. How well do you know your hymen? That kind of thing. Sample question. In thickness, the hymen most closely resembles A, glad wrap, B, the skin on custard, C, the wet look vinyl hot pants and matching poncho pictured on page 47. But I digress. Hymen, it turns out, was also the god of marriage, and it was at his altar, the hymenial altar, that couples would take their vows and thereby qualify for tin kettling. After hitting its peak of ferocity in the 1870s and 80s, tin kettling began to go off the boil to become an altogether tamer ritual. The first intimation I got of this shift was as far back as the 1870s when a string of tin kettling reports coming out of the Victorian gold mining hamlet of Edgerton noted that all it took to bring the proceedings to a peaceful conclusion was the judicious distribution of a tin of lollies by the bridegroom. Unless, could a tin of lollies be a euphemism for the contents of a shotgun? Speaking of which, I noticed that as the 1880s went on, guns fired on tin kettlers would often be loaded with grain, corn, wheat or rye, rather than the unforgiving lead shot. By 1901, you find reports like this one from the Hobart Mercury. A quiet wedding was celebrated at Fingal recently, and in the evening a party of young men repaired to the residence of the happy pair for the purpose of giving them the old-time greeting of a tin kettling. But on the party making their appearance in front of the house, they were cordially invited to step inside and drink the health of the newly married couple. The invitation was promptly accepted, Singing, music and dancing followed, and the company, who separated about midnight, evidently put in a very agreeable and jovial time. Ten years later at Gurumbat near Benalla in Victoria, on Saturday evening a party of tin kettlers met at the residence of Mr R. Williams for the purpose of giving the happy couple a welcome home after their honeymoon trip. Mr Williams allowed them some time at their fun, and then he cordially, again cordially, invited them to come inside. After introducing his bride, Mr. Williams provided abundant refreshments. Songs, recitations, etc. were then indulged in for a few hours when the party dispersed after having a real good time. Come 1924, and Perth's Sunday Times reported how a large party of residents of Woodside extended a welcome of a hearty nature to Mr. and Mrs. Rupert Tunney upon their arriving home after their wedding holiday. The occasion took the form of a tin kettling, and after striking jazz effects had been rendered by the aid of petrol tins and bells, Mr and Mrs Tunney extended the visitors a hearty welcome. In 1930, a tin kettling welcome home in Corombi, Western Victoria, was followed by supper, speeches, short stories, songs and dancing on the veranda. And by the 1950s, we find tin kettlers presenting their impromptu host and hostess with sets of Pyrex dishes, in return for an enjoyable evening of whist and canasta. What a come down from whip cracking and gunfire. Still, this is clearly the kind of tin kettling my partner remembers partaking in as a boy in small town South Australia. His family and their neighbours would visit newlyweds with saucepans and pot lids for a good-natured bit of tin kettling, but they'd also take along a casserole 
and plates of cream puffs to share. So, yeah, by the 1950s, or well before, tin kettling had been thoroughly defanged. An interesting thing, though, David, that's my old man, I've also heard him reminisce about this other small-town custom of his boyhood, when he used to go out rocking roofs. He and his mates, when they were maybe ten or younger, would, as a lark, and under cover of dusk or darkness, chuck rocks on the tin roofs of houses round the neighbourhood. Not newlyweds, just anybody's. You know, just to startle the inmates. So that aspect of tin kettling lived on too, only as its own thing, a thing as ancient as boys and rocks, lived on quite separate from the thing made respectable by Tupperware and cream puffs. And a late addition, just this week, I mentioned tin kettling to my mum. She grew up in inner suburban Melbourne in the 1930s, and no, she'd never heard of tin kettling. But, she said, without any prompting from me, she did used to throw rocks on the roofs of people just married. What, was this you and your brothers, was it? I asked. No, mum and dad too, she said. They'd get ballast from the railway line and crack people's roof tiles just for a lark. My mum. You'd swear butter wouldn't melt in her mouth. But how were you meant to fill in your evenings when there was nothing on TV? Way back in 1858, a writer in the Melbourne Argus had pointed out that we have few attractive amusements and the public are sometimes in danger of dying of ennui. And this was in Melbourne, let alone Burrungong or Back Creek. The result, said the Argus, was that a few noisy brawlers can collect a crowd any day by any device, if it's merely beating tin kettles. And with the crowd gathered, passers-by will stop to see what it's about and what odd thing is to come next. Nothing on TV is homemade in my Verlin Heights studio in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia, and is produced by that fearless feuilletongist, Mrs Bradley. Take a look at my homepage, that's robinanear.com slash nothingontv, for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. There's an email link there too, if you want to get in touch. But Twitter and Facebook, uh uh-uh. Nothing on TV is proud to be a social media dead zone. You can find and download past episodes of the podcast at the show page or else at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever. Why not subscribe and have new episodes drop as if by magic into your podcast feed? Also at the show page, you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of resources that'll help you delve into Trove's marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. Or you could always go and chuck rocks on someone's roof. I'm Robin Anir. Talk to you next time.